morning's scripture portion describes the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ beginning at verse 18 of Matthew chapter 1 and goes through verse 25, the end of the chapter. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy word. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they had come together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The grass withers and the flowers fade but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for this precious text of Scripture, this first story in Matthew's Gospel following the remarkable genealogy, the description of the angel's visitation to to Joseph, Jesus' adopted father. Thank you that it is before us. Thank you that we have it for our reading in our language. And thank you, Lord, that we are in a place where your word is honored and not merely read, but we we are in a church where it is explained faithfully according to the original meaning and applied to our lives. Thank you, Lord, that your Holy Spirit takes the words from the page, your words, and makes them words in our hearts so that we are changed. So I pray that each and every person who is listening to this morning's message will indeed be changed. For these are life-changing words. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This Christmas, we're looking at several characters around the cradle. It's a wonderful series, and it's one that I've enjoyed preparing. And uh, my assistant, John, who's been leading our worship this morning, John will deliver a a sermon in this series as well after Christmas. We've looked at some perhaps less well-known people like Caesar Augustus and his role that he played in the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Last week, we looked at maybe the most well-known person around the cradle, the Blessed Virgin Mary, and today we look at Righteous Joseph. And that's my sermon title, Righteous Joseph. It comes straight from the pages of Scripture and what was just read in verse 19. 
But what does righteous Joseph mean? I want to explore with you what the Bible means when it calls Joseph righteous this morning. In fact, I want to show you several layers of Joseph's righteousness. But first, I want to review the story. The story begins in a most interesting way, in telling about the birth, or literally in verse 18, the genesis of Jesus Christ. That's the Greek word there for birth. Matthew, unlike Luke, chooses to relate the tale not from the perspective of Mary, Jesus' mother, but from Joseph. As we saw last week in the Gospel of Luke, the entire story revolves around Mary's encounter with the angel Gabriel and her being told of what will happen to her. Matthew takes the opposite perspective. He, he relates the story as this angel of the Lord appears to Joseph, Jesus' adopted father. We also know that it's the perspective of Joseph because the genealogy that's listed in verses 2 through 17 of our text It's not just random names, although they're hard to pronounce, perhaps, and hard to understand in parts and places. It's Joseph's genealogy. It's the list of Joseph's ancestors. We get this from our text by verse 15, which says, Mathan is the father of Jacob, and Jacob is the father of Joseph. The genealogy ends with Joseph, who then is described in his relationship, the husband to Mary, of whom, verse 16, Jesus was born, who is the Messiah or the Christ. We also know it's about Joseph because even though Mary's supernatural birth is briefly mentioned in verse 18 of our text, the entire rest of the passage focuses on Joseph's discovery of this and him being explained by the angel of what it means. And in this explanation of Joseph's discovery and his reaction to it, we have both a negative reaction, his initial reaction is negative, and then after the angel appears to Joseph, he reacts in a more positive way. So our story clearly emphasizes Joseph before the birth of Jesus, during and after. This passage is all about Joseph. In a moment, I'm going to discuss why this focus is so, so specifically and narrowly on Joseph, but, but now I want to just look at some highlights of this negative and positive reaction that I've described. What are some features that will help you understand, at least initially, why Joseph's reaction was negative? The information provided to us as readers in verse 18 is not yet given to Joseph. It says... Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. We know Joseph doesn't know this because the exact same information in 18, which he doesn't know, is then told to him in verse 20 by the angel when he does discover it. But before he discovers it, he does find out that she's pregnant and we're told that he is a righteous man. In verse 19. But we also see in verse 19 that he is a man of mercy and restraint because 
He doesn't want to disgrace or humiliate or make a public display of Mary, which is what it means here when it says being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame. That's what that means. But he is a just man. He desires to obey the commandments of the law, but not just in the letter, but in the spirit. He desires to show love to his betrothed, to Mary, which is what the text means when, when it says he desires to put her away secretly. Some background information will help you understand to appreciate this initial negative reaction of Joseph. First, betrothal. In the ancient world of Israel, betrothal was functionally equivalent to marriage. It did not include sexual relations, consummation of marriage, the husband and wife coming together and in conjugal unity, one flesh unity, happened or was saved until the actual wedding. But nevertheless, betrothing or betrothal, a betrothal was as binding as the wedding itself, as marriage itself. And so for Joseph to have broken the betrothal would be equivalent to a divorce and would require actually a divorce proceedings. And this word here, to put her away, is actually the word used in the Old Testament to describe divorce. But we also need to understand not only about betrothal, but adultery to appreciate Joseph's negative reply. Breaking the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, was a biblically permissible reason to put someone away in both the Old and the New Testaments. Divorce is not permitted in the Bible, but for the reasons of adultery and desertion. Any sexual activity outside of marriage constitutes adultery. That's important to realize as well. Adultery isn't just the sexual behavior of a married, one married person with another married person in another marriage. It's any biblically forbidden sexual behavior outside the boundaries of one man married to one woman for life. That's adultery. So Mary's sexual behavior or perceived sexual behavior, that's the only way Joseph would have known that this child could have come into her womb, constituted at least a strong suspicion of adultery. And it would require both a trial for the crime of adultery through the Jewish religious courts and could be punishable by death even, according to the law. The other thing that helps to explain Joseph's negative, initially negative response is the idea of pregnancy. This relates to adultery because for Mary to have become pregnant during the betrothal period left Joseph in a very difficult spot indeed. He clearly suspects Mary of sexual impropriety. That's why the text says in verse 19 what it says. If he had not put her away, imagine what the small town gossip would have been. It's either that A, Joseph approved of her adultery, or B, he was the source of her child. Either way, he would have had to act according to the law if he were to maintain his own standing in the community. And not just before the eyes of man, because Joseph was a righteous man also before the eyes of God. It seems in our text that Joseph from the heart truly desired to honor God. 
and a kind of gross sin which at least initially the, Amer- the pregnancy of Mary suggested is the last thing righteous Joseph would have wanted to have been associated with. This is why he reacts negatively at first. But all this changes when Joseph is visited by an angel of the Lord in a dream. You'll notice that the text finds Joseph reflecting on these things. He's not hasty to respond. I'll return to that in a little bit later in the sermon. As he's considering these things, our text says in verse 20, as he's pondering them, as he's meditating on them, as he's, I'm sure, praying before God, what should I do, Lord? He comes to his sleep on a particular night and the messenger of the Lord explains where the child comes from. This is not, Joseph, this is not a child of immorality. This is a child which is conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now, miraculous births are not uncommon in the Bible. All through the patriarchs, we have supernatural births coming about. Just to take one, for example, the birth of Isaac from Sarah took place when her womb was as good as dead, we're told her, and Abraham well along in years. So ridiculous was the thought that Sarah would conceive that she laughed when the angel of the Lord appeared to her. How can this be? No, this child, in a long succession of supernaturally delivered children, is a supernatural deliverance amongst all the miraculous babies in the Bible because a virgin will conceive who will have whose child will have a very special mission to fulfill. He will save his people from their sins. This will be the fulfillment of Isaiah's Emmanuel prophecy. Emmanuel, God with us. In order for God to save his people, he must come to his people. It's not enough simply to speak to them. He's done this, and it hasn't made the difference. So God needs to come to his people. So the name Jesus and the name Emmanuel come together in terms of his name and his mission or how he will accomplish this salvation. God will be clothed in human flesh. So Joseph is to call the child Jesus. Jesus is the Greek version of the, of the Old Testament name Joshua or Yehoshua, which means Jehovah saves. The Lord God Almighty saves. A couple of background elements will help you understand the positive change of mind that Joseph experiences. First of all, adoption. Joseph lives in a world where adoption lines were significant and frequently adopted individuals were qualified for royal positions, if not to inherit royalty themselves. This is why the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream and addresses him as Joseph, son of David. David is the king. And apparently, through this long genealogy that we've just traced in 2 through 17 of Matthew chapter 1, we are being told that Joseph is indeed an heir of King David. And that will come to be very important. Because by accepting Mary as his wife, not putting her away in divorce, but by receiving her, and by further naming her son Jesus as instructed by this angel, Joseph would effectively be adopting Jesus into his own family line and as a rightful heir of David would ensure that Jesus 
who has no human father is a legitimate Davidic son. So adoption is important, but also prophecy is important in the change of Joseph's mind from negative to positive. Because after the announcement of the angel is given, we're told in verse 22, and this is Matthew explaining the dream to us as readers, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And here he quotes not one, but two prophecies of Isaiah. Isaiah 7.14, the virgin prophecy, and Isaiah 1, the prophecy of Emmanuel. So prophecy is an important aspect of the change of Joseph's mind. In fact, starting in this passage and going all the way to Matthew chapter 5, there are at least five significant prophecies that Matthew tells us explain and prove and show who Jesus is and what he has come to do. This is being the first. Jesus, you see, fulfills the Old Testament promise of the Messiah. God promises to save his people. He promises to save them in a supernatural way. He promises to save them in a personal way. God with us. Matthew wants us to know that what's happening in Joseph's life and what's happening in Mary's life and what's happening in, in Israel's life is nothing short than the outworking of God's old promises now become new. But not just adoption and prophecy help to shape Joseph's thinking, but also obedience. Notice in verses 24 and 25 of our passage how Joseph so promptly obeys. When he woke from sleep, he got a cup of coffee and kept thinking about it. It's not what it says. Following so many righteous people, men and women in the Old Testament, Joseph, first thing, it doesn't say this, but I suspect right at dawn, as, as soon as he gets up, he gets about, taking care of business. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. He took Mary as his wife, number one. He knew her not until she had given birth, number two. And number three, he names her Jesus. Where did this prompt, heartfelt, thorough, complete, dedicated obedience come from? Whatever it is that he understood from the dream, he clearly believes and in faith, responds in an incredibly thorough manner. In all of this, Joseph honors the word of the Lord that was given to him in the dream. He also assumes the role which he would play in the young child's life as stepfather or adoptive father. I think this is an incredible story. If you think about all, the, all that's going on here, maybe you've never actually stopped and and read this story carefully as we've just done, as we've gone through verse by verse, even word by word. Really pausing, slowing down to appreciate the drama, the miracle, the magnitude. But as I said in the beginning, why does the gospel here focus so exclusively on Joseph? I mentioned this a little bit, but I want to expand on this. I think the principal reason is to address what one commentator calls an unresolved question from the genealogy, and it is this. 
given the fact that Jesus is not born of a father in any ordinary way, given the fact that Jesus has no human father in any ordinary sense, how is it that he can be an heir to the Davidic dynasty? How can the Son of God be the Son of David? And Matthew wants you to know the answer to that question. And so he zeroes in on a son of David, Joseph, and his righteous response to the revelation of God through the angel. And in receiving this revelation by faith and then acting on it by faith in obedience with cheerfulness and from the heart, Joseph ensures that his adopted son, Jesus, would indeed be the son of David. Joseph, you see, plays an understated but a crucial, crucially important role in the life of Jesus. He names him. Joseph is the one who names his son. In a Jewish society in the ancient world, when the father named the son, the father became the father to the son. You see this in Luke's gospel when all the community asks Zechariah, what's his name? He says, his name is John. Nobody in your family's named John. That's his name. Trust me, we've been over this, me and God. Now, a lot more could be said about our text, but for the purpose of this morning's sermon in our series, I want to focus on Joseph's character as one of the characters around the cradle. And what stands out to me, as I've said in my title, is the righteousness of Joseph. I want to look at the layers of righteousness. I see Joseph as having several layers to his righteous character, four layers indeed. And as I'm thinking about them, they go from, from the top layer down to the depths. If you can think of this as mining for gold, we have the, at, at, at at the heart of this, my, his fourth layer of righteousness is gold. But one, two, and three, lead us there and see if you can follow how Joseph is righteous in our text using that image. The text tells us that Joseph is ethnically righteous, first of all. By that I mean he's Jewish. He's a member of the, the chosen people. He's a member of the, the Jewish race, of the tribe, the, the great tribe of Benjamin. He's a son of David. He is, he is righteous by way of his ethnic identity. God has chosen the Jewish people among all the sons of Adam to carry on the promise given to Adam that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. So even today, when religious Jews are described by themselves and by others, they're sometimes called righteous men or the righteous people. This means that they are ethnically righteous. They have a, a cultural identity of righteousness. They behave in certain ways. They do certain things. They make a lefer, an effort to live distinct, righteous manner in terms of what they eat, in terms of what they touch, in terms of where they go, how they spend their time. But it's not just con, uh, sort of behavior. It's also their mo moral conduct which is righteous and distinct. And I don't believe that this is a matter of pride for Joseph. I think it's simply a matter of fact. He is a righteous man. 
But it's not the only layer of Joseph's righteousness, it's just the first. At a deeper level, he's not just ethnically righteous in that he's different from the rest of the pagan and secular society around him. He's not just describing himself, he's not just being described as a member of the Jewish people. He's being described as someone who loves what is right. Joseph wasn't content to simply say, abstain from certain foods or, or refrain from touching certain things or spending his time in certain ways as if he was a religious robot, like a, like a righteous robot going through the motions. I believe he's legally righteous at a deeper level because he cares about what is right. He cares about God. He cares about God's Word. He's a man who seeks to know God, to hear God, and to follow God. He would sing with David, I'm sure, in the synagogue, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my study all the day. In this sense, Joseph knows right from wrong, and he tries to do what was right and tries to avoid doing what is wrong, and not just because he doesn't want to get in trouble. And this takes me to a third layer of righteousness, deeper still. I believe that Joseph is spiritually righteous. He knows that superficial obedience to the Ten Commandments is not enough. He's not like the rich young ruler, oh, all these I've kept since I was young. And Jesus asks him a harder question, what about the money? And in that story, in that encounter, that rich young man in Jesus' ministry hangs his head and walks away unrighteous. The righteous young ruler walks away unrighteous because he was exposed. I think Joseph understood this. Mere obedience to the law can be horrible because as Jesus would go on to teach as an adult, it's possible to keep small laws but break big ones. It's possible to love little righteous things but to despise great and glorious righteous things, weighty righteous things. So perverted and twisted is the human heart by sin, it is possible to seem righteous and to do righteous, but not be righteous. And in fact, the error of some Jews then and even today, and even Christians today, is to think because of the family that I grew up in, because of the, the church that I'm in, because of my, my, my own moral code, I am righteous. And God's like, excuse me? Don't you forget that I'm the one who did this work in your life? I'm the one who turned you back on the path to living for me? I'm the one who has given you a heart of flesh and not just a heart of stone and have driven my word down into your heart and have given you a desire and a love for the good and the true and the beautiful. Where do I see his spiritual righteousness in the text? Well, the text is very spare, but I think I'm on good grounds when I see the spiritual righteousness in his emotional sensitivity to Mary. See, he's not just a religious righteous robot, as I said, because he ponders his, his obligations to this woman and his obligations to the law. And he's weighing them. He's carefully mixing mercy with his obedience, you see. 
If he were an ordinary guy, guys, ready, fire, aim. Act first, ask questions later. I'm going to do my job. I'm going to take care of business. I'm going to get this done. And I certainly don't want a woman sullying my reputation. Now, how common that that mindset was in ancient Israel, how common it is today in this church, in your life, I can't say. But friends, Joseph is careful here. There's something special about his reflection and his, as I'm saying, emotional sensitivity. But look, too, at the prompt manner in which he responds to the instruction that he received in his dream. I mentioned this earlier. He leaves nothing undone. He doesn't do it halfway. Fully and clearly and from the heart, he obeys the instructions of the Lord. Well, this brings me to the deepest level. We've now, if we're mining for gold, we've now struck pay dirt. This is where the sparkle is, the the glistening in the pan. Where does all this righteous behavior come from? It might sound at this point like Joseph was practically perfect, flawless even. Not so. He was wrong, wasn't he? In his initial doubts about Mary, and while I don't want to be too hard on the man, he was wrong. I know he was ignorant, but something in him led him, moved him towards the conclusion that the Blessed Mary had done something wrong, and this is sort of like what a lot of us do as men, I feel. And while he was technically thinking about how to keep the law, which was the right thing to do, there was probably something in him that says, this doesn't seem quite right. I believe that the real transformation Joseph experienced may have happened in the dream. In his dream, when God revealed his will for him, when God came to Joseph in the dream from the angel of the Lord who faithfully brought the message of God and the name that God wanted to be given to his incarnate son, this is when Joseph experienced the life change where his righteous went down to the deepest level of all. And he discovered that in the mission that his son was to be given, he was included. You see, Jesus came to save his people. Now, every Jew would have believed that, that the Messiah was coming to save the Jewish people, to to throw off the Roman power, to deliver us from the, the oppression of empire and Caesar's boot. Every Jew would have longed for that revolution to have taken place. In fact, Many Jews prior to the time of Jesus believed that that moment had come. Judas Maccabeus, for one, and what is celebrated today as Hanukkah, was an uprising against the horrible pagan intrusion of Antiochus Epiphanes in the temple a full hundred or more years before Jesus was born. Yes, salvation was the heartbeat of every faithful Jew, but this isn't any ordinary salvation that Jesus, Jehovah saves, would bring. Joseph was told that he will save his people from something very specific. And it does not say he will save his people from Roman oppression. It does not say he will save his people 
from political tyranny. It says he will save his people from their sins. This is a most unusual Messiah. Sins? But we're the righteous people. We're the people of the book. We're the people of the law. We're the people of the sacraments, of the sacrifices. We don't need saving from our sins. Joseph may have had some sense of his sin, but after this dream, I believe he more clearly understood God's plan of redemption. When salvation was promised in Mary's child, it was a specific, a special kind of salvation. Salvation from damnation. Salvation from judgment, and not just Gentile judgment, but judgment on Jew and Gentile, for there's no one righteous, Scripture said, and the prophets warned, not even one. All have gone astray. Together they have all become corrupt. It is not just Gentiles, you see, who stand excluded from the life of God because of their sins, but Jews as well. Messiah was coming in order to deliver God's people, even righteous people like Joseph, from their sins. Now, Joseph wouldn't fully grasp the magnitude of this statement. It was a dream after all. But I believe it was the beginning of the unfolding understanding in this stepdad's life and in his mind about the true nature and identity of the son that he would raise and give his name to, and protect, and father, and teach, and train. Eventually, I believe Joseph would come to understand that salvation consists of two parts. Number one, that Jesus makes a complete atonement for our sins by shedding his precious blood on the cross, wiping away as the perfect sacrificial lamb all of our wrongdoings and all the things that we have erred, but also by filling us with the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit, we are enabled to live a righteous life, to do God's work, and to carry out His will because of God's grace. We are freed from the bondage of our sin and the tyranny of the devil, and we need no longer serve that master, but we may serve God in Christ in newness of life. This is what Peter teaches in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Well, as I conclude this morning, thinking about righteous Joseph, I'd like to leave you with three ways that you can apply this text, and I'm thinking specifically this morning of the young men in our church. Joseph was probably 18 to 20 years old. Mary was probably no younger than 14, but she was a young woman as well. We looked at her last week, but this week I'd like to concentrate these applications this morning on the men, especially the young men. Pay attention. Three R's for our application. One, repentance. I've heard a saying as I go about my work as a pastor, 
particularly as a pastor of a Bible-believing church such as ours, an evangelical, a Reformed, Protestant church. There's a saying, maybe you've heard it, it's young, restless, and Reformed. Young, restless, and Reformed describes a person, often a man, who's come to grips with the beautiful truths of the Protestant Reformation. The glory of God, salvation by faith alone, the centrality of grace, and so forth. This is what we mean by reformed. And then sees his church or his family or society at large in such a state of decline or disarray or degeneration that he is restless about it. It's as if he prays the prayer of, of David in Psalm 12. When the, when the unrighteous are exalted, when the ungodly are raised up, what are the righteous to do? Such young men are indeed righteous in their own way, but too often they lack the kind of sensitive, spiritual, experiential righteousness that we see with Joseph in our passage. This requires repentance. You see, Luther, the greatest Protestant reformer, in his 95 theses began them by saying, number one, the entire Christian life is to be a life of repentance. Repentance isn't just something you do once in a prayer at camp when you're 9 or 12 years old. It's not just something you do for First Holy Communion or when you profess your faith and are baptized. Repentance is a lifestyle of a Christian. As a church, we practice confession of our sin each and every Sunday because repentance is central to our identity. We are saved by grace and we live by grace every single day. Are you repentant is my question, young man. It's not enough to know this in theory. You need to know it in practice. Total depravity doesn't mean that you're as bad as you could be. It means that every single part of you, your thoughts, your feelings, your actions, are in some small or large way tainted by sin, and you must have the cleansing blood of Christ if you are ever to stand before God and sing His praises. Each and every person needs to make repentance personal. It's not your parents. It's not your church. It's not the Bible. It's you in your heart praying before God. God, have mercy on me, the sinner. And it's this sort of heartfelt, spiritual, emotional righteousness which changes a young and restless Reformed man to a young, reflective, and responsible Reformed man, which are my next two application points here. I want to encourage you, young men, to be responsible. Having repented, notice Joseph's responsibility. Like other young men in his culture, Joseph was, was expected to assume adult responsibilities as a fairly young age, as soon as his bar mitzvah would hit at age 13, 14. Joseph was off to the races and an apprentice most likely to a trade. In his case, he was a stonemason or a carpenter. The, the Greek word for, for those two trades is one and the same. And so Joseph's hands became callous, 13, 14 years old. He was working every single day, dawn till dusk, light till dark. And by the time he was betrothed to Mary, he was 18, 19, maybe 20 years old. He was well on his way to becoming an apprentice in his trade, he was a responsible young man. He had likely, according to Keener, saved some money for his marriage from his hard labors. In this way, Joseph was a responsible young man. He had also showed responsibility because all through his teenage years, 
He had exercised self-control. And it's true, Joseph and Mary lived in a society where sexual restraint was more the norm than it is for us today. But what Joseph did was unusual even for his society. His sexual responsibility went far beyond even the norms that were expected amongst Jews. Let me ask you this. Do you think it was the norm for a couple who was betrothed and then who became married to abstain from sex? Joseph and Mary were not a rich couple. They were not a couple of much financial means. It's very likely then that they not only slept in the same room once they were married, but possibly even in the same bed. And if they did so, perhaps they had some other arrangement, we don't know, but regardless... They controlled their sexual passions for the honor of God's Messiah who was growing in Mary's womb. Joseph was repentant, he was responsible, and so should you be. And finally, I want to encourage you to be reflective as well. I've mentioned how Joseph wasn't impulsive, but he reflected on what he must do in his unique situation. Adultery or infidelity, sex outside of marriage, is always wrong. For this reason, as we've noticed, Joseph has made, rightly made plans to divorce Mary because he assumes that she is guilty of unfaithfulness. But he does so in a way that is minimizing any harm that would come to her. What a gentleman. What a gracious man. What a reflective man. Joseph is respectful of Mary in spite of the fact that she possibly has disgraced him in the most substantial way. And so Joseph seeks Mary's honor and her good. He's a spiritual man, and he considers what he should do. He recognizes the serious nature of what's happened to her and thinks carefully about what he should do before impulsively acting out his convictions. Here's how Ryle describes it. Joseph is a beautiful example of godly wisdom and tender consideration of others. We need more young men like this. Men who, because they are repentant before the face of God, are both responsible and reflective. This combination, gentlemen, is far too rare amongst us. It's far too rare in my life. And I'm urging you, I'm appealing to you, by God's mercy and for God's glory, to consider these three R's, repentance, responsibility, and being reflective. These kind of characteristics are only possible if you trust God. Trust God alone to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. You can only be this kind of man if you realize that Jesus came to save you from your sins. And you can't manufacture this stuff. You can't make it up. Believing, as Joseph, I believe, did, that this salvation is real and necessary and urgent. So nothing but a recovery of the very teaching The Christian teaching of salvation will result in a reformation of young men in our day. In Jesus, we have the fulfillment of the Emmanuel prophecy. God is with us, men. God is with you as you seek to repent. He is with you as you seek to be responsible. And He is with you as you are reflective on your calling and your duty to show mercy and kindness and grace to the people in your life people who may have offended you. This is the note on which Matthew's gospel begins. 
And did you realize it? This is how Matthew ends. The very last chapter. Matthew ends striking the same gospel note. He says you must be responsible. He says you must be reflective. You must obey all the laws that I have given you. But don't worry. The resurrected Christ. He promises to continue to be the Emmanuel that he was when he was born. He says to his disciples, and he says to each one of you, I am with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we bow in your holy presence, we recognize that you have spoken to us in your word. And we desire, as we prayed in the beginning, we desire to not leave the same people. We desire to be changed women and changed men. We know that the change has to come from you. It has to come from Jehovah saves, Jesus. It has to come from the virgin-born Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us. So Jesus, would you please do your work in each of our hearts this morning and throughout this week until we meet again, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.